0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The holidays are all about giving and goodwill, but that can extend beyond people and pets. Take the planet, for instance. It's estimated that between Thanksgiving and New Year's, the amount of waste people generate goes up by 25%. We'll talk with sustainability experts about everything from gift wrapping, Christmas trees, and festive food to fashion. Then, 80 years ago, today, the U.S. was propelled into war when Pearl Harbor was attacked. We revisit the story of a Colorado Springs man who was on the USS Arizona.
1: Everybody was there. People were laying on the deck. People were groaning and hollering and screaming. Everybody was trying to get a shot of morphine, and my T-shirt caught on fire, and of course they cut all of our clothes off.
2: As you enjoy the gifts of family and friends during this holiday season, all of us here at Colorado Public Radio would like to thank members,
3: businesses, and volunteers who are such a vital part of the work we do every day.
2: Colorado Public Radio wouldn't be able to do what it does or be here for you without you. Thank you for being part of the Colorado Public Radio community and on behalf of listeners all over Colorado. Thank you for your support. Happy Holidays.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Nathan Heffel on the Western Slope. Of course, there's joy in giving this holiday season, but when you look under the tree, do you feel a little guilty too? All the shiny ribbon, the bright lights, the wrapping paper, the bows. Well, there are ways to make the holiday a little more friendly to the earth. We're going to take some time to talk about sustainability today. Bob Lillianfeld is a sustainability consultant. He joined us in Broomfield. Bob, thanks for being here. My pleasure, Nathan. I I mean, everybody is entitled to a good time at the holidays, of course. The colors, the traditions, the warmth, but how big an issue are all the things we love about the holidays for the environment?
4: Well, interesting you should ask. Um, We waste a significant amount of stuff, you know, every day of the year, but between Thanksgiving and um, New Year's, we actually uh, waste about 25% more stuff. Um, the the good news is it, it really isn't that hard to reduce the amount of, of waste we create. And uh, rather than worrying about a lot of little small things, there's there's a couple of big things that we can we can worry about. And the two that specifically come to mind are, are reducing our energy consumption and also reducing our food waste.
0: Reducing our energy consumption. So those holiday lights and things like that. Is that what we're talking about here?
4: That's part of it, uh, and, and in terms of holiday lights, I don't want to be Scrooge-like, as, as you said, <laughs> um, but if, if you're buying new holiday lights, buy the LEDs uh, for two reasons. One, they use significantly less energy, and uh, the, the second thing is uh, they don't give off heat, which if you've got a real tree is a, is a tremendous benefit as the tree dries out because the, the potential for fire goes way down. Um, oh, I the see, I see, because do... the,
0: the, I remember it, 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 in my past, my, my parents had the giant bulbs, right? That were so
4: hot. Yeah, eg- eg- exactly. So if, if you stay away from those and use LEDs, and the other thing to do is inside lights, outside lights, put them on timers. Um, no need to keep the tree on all night long. You're, I mean, literally all you're doing is wasting electricity because nobody's there to see it.
0: Uh, are there bigger issues besides the holiday lights when it comes to energy and energy consumption over this season?
4: Much bigger issues. Um, uh, the real issue is is how much um, your air conditioner or at uh, this time of year how much your heater um, is is running, and and that's the single biggest energy. Um, producer or user in, in your house. So my suggestion is real simple. Turn your thermostat down by two degrees and put on a sweater. Um, remember that if you have people over and you're all sitting in one room, uh, the the body heat that you generate uh, will allow you to turn the temperature down even more. Um, so so if you think not necessarily about ways to, to save energy, but ways to save money, you're you're going to be on the right track. And with um, inflation apparently running rampant, as you read every day, anything we can all do to save money is is a, is a good thing.
0: And, and speaking specifically about Christmas or about Hanukkah, the, the holidays that, that just passed there, um, is there a, a big source of waste with those specific holidays? I'm thinking, you know, wrapping paper or possibly the food that we eat and things like that.
4: Well, the the food in both cases you're right, but I'm more concerned with the food, and and the reason for that is is, is many fold. First, food is expensive. Secondly, what you don't eat or what you throw away is something that somebody else, whether it's in your family or friends or or even um, uh, people who are um, not getting enough food could have, could have been eating. And there's some really simple things to do regarding food waste. Uh, the first is to plan ahead. Think like a restaurant. Um, every time a restaurant buys food, they don't buy food for one meal. They're looking at how they're going to extend the use of that food over many meals. So you should plan ahead. You should shop from a list. And if you know you're shopping for, let's say, three days' worth of food, buy it all up front. So that when you open the refrigerator the day after Christmas and you're ready to make something and you look and you go, "Oh man, I don't have any mayonnaise um, I can't make that you know make, make sure you have on hand what you what you need. keep it as simple and convenient as possible. but the single biggest piece of advice I have for people is to remember remember that what doesn't go on the plate is leftovers and what goes on the plate is is trash we We throw out the food that that we don't eat that's on our plates. So um, if you're serving buffet style, ask people to take a little less. If you're doing the serving, which I would recommend, um, serve a little less and tell people that uh, why you're doing it and that you're always welcome to have seconds, but we're just trying to make sure that we don't throw food away.
0: I just think of my uncle who uh, piles his plate as high as he possibly can with food every every Christmas, and, and you're saying, maybe just take a little less this time, and maybe if you do buffet style, just take a little less and always go back and back, because the food, if I'm correct in, in saying this, that's in those bowls and in those serving platters, that can be saved, but if it's on your plate, you typically just throw it out, right?
4: That's exactly right. And if, if you're having guests over, ask them to bring their own containers so that um um, you can give them leftovers and, and you don't have to worry, well, I don't have enough containers. So and anything you can do to ensure that, that your leftover food gets eaten and eaten quickly, because people are always concerned that it's going to spoil, um, it's probably, other than turning down the heat in your house, the single most important thing you can do in terms of waste reduction.
0: I, I'm thinking, uh, you know, sticking with food. Uh, in in the U.S., we treat food differently than other parts of the world, right?
4: In terms of waste
0: and things like that.
4: There's no question about it. Uh, in In lesser developed countries, the real issue is getting food from from you know, the farm to the market. In the United States, the issue is to get food from the fridge to the fork. Um, uh, the amount of disposable income that we spend on food is significantly less than than in in other areas of the world where where the cost of food is a significant outlay. and what the problem here is that when things aren't that important to us financially, um, we don't spend that much attention to them. and but but we have to, because um food is when when you eat a piece of food, you're all of the resources that go into producing that food are. Are wasted along with the, with the food, and that's that's the biggest problem.
0: So, so are you seeing because things are costing more, and and inflation is a thing that people are just, as a matter of fact, thinking about sustainability because it hits their pocketbooks.
4: Yes, and you know what, sustainability. There's three legs on the sustainability stool. There's the environmental leg. There's the social leg, but there's also the economic leg, and that. Um, The the great thing about reducing food waste is is it's going to save you money and it's it's going to save you a lot of money, especially today as the price of food is is going up. And um, in in terms of the environmental side, there's two issues to the waste. Again, as I said before, it's everything that that gets wasted. If, if, If you're serving cranberries, for example they don't just pop up out of a bog, you know, they, they have to be cultivated. Um, They have to be processed. They have to be shipped. All of those costs are are inclusive. And then when food does get wasted, uh, depending on where it goes or how it's treated, uh, it'll biodegrade. And if it biodegrades in, in a compostable facility, that's actually good news. But if it biodegrades in a landfill, it produces greenhouse gases. So, Um, There's no free lunch. I mean, eat your food. um, And if you can't eat your food, make sure somebody else can.
0: Let's turn to uh, the Christmas gifts, the wrapping, things like that. Uh, Are there ways to make that more environmentally friendly? I know I have a bunch of wrapping paper in my closet right now that I use that I've had for years.
4: That is the ultimate um, way to, to to do this. Is anytime you can reuse something, you should. And what that means is, when you and you know this, if this is what you're doing, there are there are ways to wrap with minimum amounts of, of tape. Um, you know, don't over tape. Um, make sure that it's easy for people to to peel off the wrapping paper, um, and and reuse it. And there's actually a company now that just called me that has a, a new product they want to talk to me about that's reusable wrapping paper. I'm, I'm uh-huh. not exactly sure what, what that means, but um, the other thing to do is you don't just have to use wrapping paper is uh, if you have news and newspapers, they don't exist anymore, but <laughs> if you have magazines, for example, um, you can wrap small gifts in magazines and there's plenty of times when you can wrap a gift in a, in a magazine ad that's either for that product or something similar. So, so you can you can make this fun if, if you just work at it a little bit.
0: Yeah, and, and final question. I know it's a big controversy. Uh, live Christmas trees are artificial. Environmentally, where do you stand on that?
4: Oh, that, that, that's the big question. The, the life cycle <laughs> analyses state that on average, if, if, if your artificial tree can last more than five to six years, it's probably the better choice. Um, other than that, it, it's it's really a wash. All I would recommend is if you buy a live tree, buy one in a pot so you can plant it. And if you buy an artificial tree, take good care of it and make it an investment.
0: Real quick, that seems like a big pot for a tree.
4: Well, get a small tree. Um, okay. <laughs> but if, if, so um, if you're getting a big tree, then first, I would say, first check that your community is is grinding those trees up or reusing them. Um, and and they're farmed for that reason. So it's, it, it's, it's not as big a problem as people imagine it to be.
0: Bob Lillianfeld, thanks so much for joining us.
4: Well, thank you, Nathan. I hope you have a happy holiday.
0: You as well. He's a sustainability consultant advising both consumers and businesses. He lives in Broomfield. Let's keep this conversation going about sustainable holidays. As people put clothes at the top of their gift-giving list this year, we want to get perspective about buying fashion that looks good, that you can also feel good about. And so we turn to Rachel Cernansky of Denver. She's the Senior Sustainability Editor at Vogue Business. Rachel, thanks for joining us.
5: Good morning, Nathan. Thanks for having me.
0: So a disclosure first, you are married to our Digital Managing Editor here at (laughs) CPR. Uh, Having said that, let's get to some grounding. How do the clothes we buy impact the environment?
5: Yeah, it's uh, it's a great question. Um, we, you know, our clothes all come from somewhere. How how our clothes are made, and also where they go, which is a different conversation, but a big one. Um, but all of those processes have uh, pretty significant impacts on the planet. Um, you know, the materials that clothes are made from uh, are come often from a, a farm or a farm adjacent type of setting um mm-hmm. or uh, or polyester in the case of polyester, which is the most widely used fiber in the apparel industry, um is is basically plastic. It's made from oil. Um, and then and there there's deforestation questions around where uh, leather and some other uh, some other man-made cellulosic materials like rayon uh, come from. and so then there's land use questions and then there's you know then there's how the clothes are actually made the the all the water that goes into the the fabric processing and the dyes and the chemicals that that get clothes to be how we how we want them to look and feel or how or right. how we're made to think we want them to look and feel
0: and, and so it seems of course that clothing the impact to the environment is is large yes <laughs> Yeah. I, I want to talk about fabrics, uh, that maybe a shopper can look for when they're, they're hunting for those gifts. Um, is like cotton better than, you know, polyester or, or things like that?
5: Yeah. Uh, so it's, um, for the most part, um, it's really in the details of, of how it's made more than what it is. Um, mm-hmm. cotton is in it. So in general, natural fibers, uh, are better than polyester in the sense that they don't um, they don't come from fossil fuels and they don't so in terms of climate emissions um, there are implications there but but also in terms of the the microplastics that that shed from our clothes when we wash them Um, but uh, but it's but the way that cotton is grown the way that wool and leather are produced uh, are 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 problematic, let's say, um, and yeah. so it's more about how they are produced. And um, and just in the last couple of years, there have started to be a lot more options for people to actually turn to, as opposed to just sort of knowing that what they're buying is bad, but without well, any alternatives. Well, well so, I um, think
0: it's a, it's a yeah. question. You know, if I'm going to a, a, gro- a, a grocery store, <laughs> I'm going to a, 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 a shopping mall, let's say. How do I know that the shirt that I'm looking at is made the correct way? I mean, I don't see a sign, or there's nothing on the shirt that says this is made a certain way, right?
5: Right, that's true. There are there are companies that are trying to do that, and there are sort of systems, certification systems that are underway to try to help with that. But uh, but yeah, it's right right now. It's on the consumer to do a lot of homework. Um, uh, well, and and so, how
0: do you pers- transfer that? You know, based on on your understanding, how do you transfer that to the the creator of these products to say it's on them to create products that consumers will understand are made in a more sustainable way.
5: Yeah, they're um, well, you know, it's as sustainability has gotten more, um, you know, a a bigger issue for a lot of people, more and more companies are communicating what they're doing. The problem is that a lot are also communicating, you know, communicating, but not doing. (laughs) So they, they, um, like so, saying the
0: big talk, but not actually doing the big walk type of thing.
5: right. exactly. So, um so it's hard for for come so that's, you know, there's sort of a probably a whole separate conversation. What I would say for consumers is that uh, things like organic, Specifically, regenerative organic cotton is, um, is one that's really great to look for. There's also regenerative, um, and just like we hear this and see this in, in food, the, the way that we're hearing about regenerative agriculture in food, the same is happening in um, fashion, just a little bit further behind. So there are starting to be fibers, wool, leather, and cotton that are sourced, um, yeah, using these practices that can that can build soil rather than degrade it.
0: Can you go a little bit deeper in that? I don't know if a lot of people have heard of regenerative oh yes, products.
5: um yes, sorry. I reported on food before um fashion, <laughs> so I, I tend to just <laughs> um think that everyone knows it. but uh, yeah, so regenerative agriculture is um also well, industrial agriculture, not regenerative it uh, has has uh, relied on a lot of chemicals for um you know for things like pest control, um, disease control and fertilizer for, for nutrient, you know, for, for plants to grow. Those all have, um, implications for the, the water for, um, you know, for, for groundwater, it's it leads to pollution in nearby ecosystems. Um, and it, and it degrades soil and we have been learning in the last few years or decades, uh, depending on, um, you know which researches you talk to. Uh, that soil is a huge part of um, of the the climate. Really, it stores a lot of carbon, and um, at, or should store carbon. Right. But industrial agriculture has depleted the the soil's ability to store carbon and also store nutrients. And so regenerative agriculture is building soil back up, rather than. Depleting Got it. it.
0: So going way back to the, the the basics, the basics of of how our clothing <laughs> is made and the organics of that. Uh, we, we, I, I have another question to, to move to another part. It, it, is it better to buy locally, or, or is it still okay to let's say you know buy from a, a national chain at the mall?
6: Hmm. Uh,
5: I would say it's more about what you buy and how rather than sort of where. Where, Um, And so, yeah, so sort of looking at how products, the specific products that you're, that you're buying, how they're made, what they're made with um, more than, yeah, so like if it's a national chain, but you are finding their, you know, regenerative, organic cotton T-shirt that's made with, you know, low impact dyes and things like that, then uh, then you're you're sending the signal to that retailer to 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 make more of those things and not the other things, uh, and then the same with the local retailer. But but yeah, I, there are a lot of brands that are that are trying to. Really change how the industry works. So I think finding those brands, um, whether it's through a large retailer or you know direct, you know, um, mail order or right ha- whatever the means, I think that's probably the best, the best bet for um, for shopping responsibly.
0: How about how about secondhand fashion? You know, from thrift stores <laughs> to high end resale. I mean, all that's booming right now. Is that something shoppers can feel good about, even though it may not be organic or may not be made in the way that that.
6: You
5: know? Yes. Yes. Uh, resale. That's um, that's probably the best. This one of the one of the very best things that consumers can do. On the industry side, that there are still some kind of kinks to work out in how these models work. Um, they're not necessarily a silver bullet for reducing the industry's total impact because there's still a lot of unsold inventory that still has to go unsold you know, secondhand inventory that still has to go somewhere. And that ends up in in a lot of um, overseas markets where countries don't have infrastructure to deal with them. So it's it's a pretty significant problem. But as far as consumers go, um, yeah, it's all, you know, whatever's in your closet already or is already produced and you're buying secondhand will always have a smaller impact on the planet than making a new thing because of the resources that will
0: entail. So, look at how the product is made, uh, not as important as, or that's an, as important as, as, you know, where you buy it. Buying locally is, is, is good. And also secondhand is good as well, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Th- and, that- and, 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 uh, what about keeping the things that you don't like and avoiding returns? Let me just think about that. You get the shirt, you don't like it, you, you send it away or do you keep it?
5: Mm, returns, especially around the holidays. Uh, this is, this is a very important thing to keep in mind. Um, so, yeah, what the? Um, I mean, the best thing is to try to not need to return things because uh, companies right now a lot of returns don't go back into brands' inventory. It uh, right. it ends up being wasted in some
0: manner. So and so that... don't do that. Right, <laughs> Rachel, so, so... <laughs> we, we got to leave it there. Thanks so much.
5: Okay, thank you.
0: Rachel Sonanski of Denver is the senior sustainability editor at Vogue Business. Well, there's one more sustainable holiday item we want to talk about. You may have a poinsettia or two decorating your home. Our producer, Michelle P. Fulcher, buys the plants every year, but their relationship, well, it's been, it's been pretty complicated. She spoke with horticulturalist Nick Giaquinto of the Denver Botanic Gardens in December of 2019.
6: So let me start with this. We have a beautiful poinsettia sitting right here in the studio red leaves, white leaves, I'm going to describe them as perky, right? They're kind of standing up, beautiful plant. If this were in my house, I'd just be hoping that it would last till Christmas. Am I the lone ranger here or poinsettias is hard to take care of?
7: They can be a challenge to take care of because most people, they love to overwater plants. Poinsettias like to dry out between waterings. And unfortunately, everybody feels the need to really love their plants. Sort of killing them with kindness. Yes, they love them so much that they want to drown them. So they water (laughs) them almost every day, every other day. Poinsettias, depending on where you place them, in sunnier places, they might need to be watered a bit more frequently. In a darker place, a little bit less so. Usually you can tell where, how to water them by checking the soil. So if the soil feels dry, that's a good indicator that you should water your plant now.
6: So not even moist, but dry.
7: Dry, yeah. So if you look at your plant, your plant will tell you what it wants. If it starts to wilt, that's not a sign that it's dying. That's a sign that it just needs water. So you just got to look at those hints. And if you follow those hints, you will make it last longer than the first week when you buy it. So I have to be sort of a plant psychologist along with everything else? I, I wouldn't say psychologist. I usually use detective to figure out those very not-so-subtle hints that they're giving you. Give me another couple of hints of
6: things that people do wrong.
7: Overwatering is usually the biggest criminal thing. The other thing is when they place them in someplace really dark and then expect them to last longer, plants obviously need natural light to survive, and inside is already much darker than outside. Okay. Um, So putting it in the darkest cornering your room with no lights or not not even a window, it's ensuring that your plant is not going to live for a long time.
6: So I have kind of the opposite problem. I have big old windows all through my house. And every time I buy one of these plants, somebody says, indirect light. I'm like, first of all, what is that? And second, like, do I move the plant around during the day to catch the indirect light?
7: No, so (laughs) (laughs) um, usually it just means to keep it away from the window if it's a south-facing window. Okay. Um, South-facing windows are the brightest area. So usually take it away from the window. It'll still be in a very bright room in direct light.
6: How did this become a holiday plant anyway?
7: So they're well-known because of their bright red bracts or white bracts, pink bracts. And bracts are leaves. Yes. It's just been a staple from our greenhouse industry. They're very easy to grow and cultivate. And it's also just because it's a a pretty cheap plant for greenhouses to grow.
6: So the poinsettia is native to Mexico. It was cultivated by the Aztecs. Uh, When the missionaries came later, they called it, I love this, el flor de noche buena. That means the... Flower of Christmas Eve. How did it come to the US?
7: The poinsettia is actually named after a US ambassador to Mexico, Poinsett. Basically, during the early to mid 1800s, there's a lot of plant collecting going on at the time, so mm. people love to have all these rare exotic plants. And then over time, it just became a staple for those lovely red or white bracts that they can grow for the holiday season.
6: What do you think of poinsettias? You're a horticulturist. I ask that
7: question every day, too, actually. I'm not a huge fan of poinsettias. Um, I I wish that we used more anthuriums, which is another amazing aeroid family plant that um, is usually used actually in Europe more for their cut flowers during the holiday season.
6: And what do anthuriums, do they have like a popular name? I uh,
7: flamingo flower would cool. probably be the most common name. It's a staple houseplant here in the United States as well. Um, continually blooms red flowers. Oh, nice. um, It's just a great plant and much sturdier than a poinsettia. The problem with things like anthuriums is that they're much more expensive. Okay, so there's
6: a myth that goes with poinsettias. Poinsettias. There you go. There you go. Um, that they're poisonous, right?
7: No. So they're related to—they they are euphorbia, and there are a lot of euphorbias, and some of them are toxic, but um, poinsettia— is not toxic. Same thing with like the concern of feeding your dog or cat. It's not going to be the end of the world if they accidentally bit a leaf or two off of it. Nick Giaquinto, horticulturalist at the Denver Botanic Gardens, speaking in December of 2019
0: with Colorado Matters producer Michelle P. Fulcher. And we're happy to say that two years later, Michelle's poinsettias are alive and well.
1: Percy, the puny poinsettia Hanging his bloom in dismay If they had just kept him wetter He'd be a houseplant today Folks like the other plants better Now he's alone on the shelf Even a plant with no uncle or aunt Shouldn't spend Christmas Day by
0: himself Back in a moment, you're with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC
6: Running a restaurant was challenging before the pandemic. For the ones that have survived, COVID's made it even trickier. I'm CPR business reporter Sarah Mulholland.
0: And I'm Ryan Warner from Colorado Matters. We'll bring you a day in the life of a restaurant, from the difficulties of finding servers and broccoli
6: to the juggling act of running a small business while raising a family.
0: Your table is ready Monday at 9 and 7 on CPR News and KRCC. Today is Pearl Harbor Day, marking the surprise attack 80 years ago that propelled the U.S. into World War II. More than 2,400 Americans were killed, nearly half of them crew members of the USS Arizona. Donald Stratton of Colorado Springs was on the ship that day.
1: Everybody was there, people were laying on the deck. People were groaning and hollering and screaming. Everybody was trying to get a shot of morphine, and my T-shirt caught on fire, and of course they cut all of our clothes off. And my back was burnt pretty bad. All my hair was gone, burnt off. And my ear, part of my ear was gone. And had a lot of scars.
0: Stratton died last year at the age of 97. His experience at Pearl Harbor is preserved in the book All the Gallant Men. I spoke with Stratton's co-author, Ken Geyer, in 2016. Welcome to Colorado Matters. Great to be here, Nathan. Thank you. Can you take us back to 1941 and paint a picture of this 19-year-old seaman first class?
2: Sure. Uh, Dunn was uh, part of that area of the Southern Plains. Um, You didn't really travel to see the world. You didn't really have dreams and aspirations of wanting to go to New York or Hollywood to make it big or anything like that. You just pretty much stayed on the land. You didn't change churches. You didn't change uh, friendships. You pretty much had friends that you lived with, worked with, played with uh, all of your life. Don was uh, one of 200 students in his high school. He was voted the best athlete in the school. He played four sports, specialized mostly in football, loved, loved football quite a bit.
0: So what was it like for this small-town boy to see this great battleship, the USS Arizona, for the first time when he went to Hawaii? it absolutely
2: took his breath away the arizona was the flagship battleship of uh, the pacific fleet and it was such a mammoth thing two football fields long and about a third of a football field wide and huge guns and gun turrets he's fond of saying he said it was quite a sight quite a sight
0: and he's assigned routine jobs and and also to a battle station he says they practice a couple times a week but the u.s wasn't at war at the time but he wakes up on the morning of December 7th, 1941, walks out on deck. What does he see?
2: He sees he's a, he had actually just finished breakfast, and he had uh, several oranges in his naval cap that he was taking to a friend who had jaundice in sickbay. And just as soon as he got up on deck, he saw the sailors all pointing to Ford Island. And he heard the drone of planes and the bombs dropping, beginning to drop. And then he saw one of the planes veer away and saw the characteristic uh, meatballs, meatballs, meatballs—what they call those round red decals on the wings of the Japanese Zero—and uh, he just went immediately to his battle station, ran up about uh, five flights of metal stairs to get there. It was—it was mainly calibrating the guns, uh, the anti-aircraft guns that they had on board, and trying to set the altitude right so that when the Uh, anti-aircraft shell blew up, it would blow up at a certain altitude where the planes were flying in the hope that it would, the shrapnel from those bullets would hit the cockpit or fuel line or some other vital part of the enemy planes. It sounds like typically that would take some time and, you know, gearing
0: up for an attack, that would be something you could do uh, over a series of minutes. But this was a surprise
2: attack. And was he prepared for that? They were all prepared for that. They drilled really hard. Hmm. Um, the problem of Pearl Harbor is not in the preparedness of the sailors or the navy or the army. They were very prepared and they did their drills. They were just not alert and they weren't vigilant in terms of paying attention to some of the warnings that were warnings that they had and preparing themselves for the likelihood of and the imminency of of war.
0: And Don says the Japanese, while they were attacking his ship, they flew so low that. He could see the pilots smirking and waving. It gives the impression in the book that this was very personal to him, that that sight. It
2: was very personal. And and you have to take into consideration that he lost so many friends uh, in an instant. And to see your enemy, one, not declare war, but just kind of hitting you blindside. It's like you're just walking and somebody comes up from behind you and this slams into your head and knocks you to the ground. It's that type of thing. And it was one thing for them to do that is another thing for them to gloat over it. And just as they were dropping their bombs and strafing the ships, uh, had this just wicked grin on their face and waving to them and making all kinds of gestures to them.
0: And the Arizona was hit by several bombs, uh, but the fourth one was cataclysmic. An armor-piercing bomb dropped from 10,000 feet drills right into the ammunition storage and the battleship explodes. What happened to Don at that point?
2: It went through the starboard side of the number two turret. When it exploded, it ignited a million pounds of gunpowder, 180,000 gallons of aviation fuel for the planes that they had on board, the spotting planes. But they also had just filled up the ship in anticipation for a trip to the west coast. And so they had a a million and a half gallons of fuel on, on top of that. And when the bomb exploded, all of that exploded too. And you had this huge, huge fireball and these black plumes of smoke just billowing up and eating up the blue sky. Well, the place that he served in his General quarters battle station was a cubicle made out of metal. And so that metal really shielded those people inside of it from being killed. And Don is at his station
0: at, at the time, and he's alive, but of course he's in the middle of this inferno. Here's exactly how he describes it.
1: We were no escape there down the hatches or down the ladders and everything because everything was all so hot you couldn't hardly do anything. And one gentleman jumped out and I tried to close the hatch and got burned pretty bad. But just pulled the skin off my arms and threw it down because it was in the way.
0: He pulled the burned skin off his arms because it was getting in the way. Don's facing certain death, but then someone comes to the rescue. What
2: happens? What happened was there was a a momentary parting of this huge plume of black smoke. And he saw a man in another ship that was moored right next to them in a ship called the Vestal. And the Vestal was a repair ship, and they had docked alongside of the Arizona. And he saw uh, a sailor cutting the lines that held the two ships together because the Vestal was fearful that the fire from the Arizona would destroy them. And so he waves, gets this man's attention, and has him throw a heaving line. And so he throws the heaving line over, uh, miss it once, miss it twice. A third time, Don catches it, ties it off, and now they have to see if they can go across. Uh, it's about 70 feet across, and it's about 45 feet down. Now, what down looked like, was now the fuel oil was in the water and had ignited. So you have flames not only under the sky platform where they were cooking the metal that they were standing on, but they had flames in between the two ships. They were going to try to just forehand, one hand over the other, to get from the Arizona to the Vestal. And he's burned over two-thirds of his body, isn't that correct? He is. He's burned over two-thirds of his body, but also... All the flesh in their hands was burned off and in their palms. So as they're forehanding themselves across this rope, it it was just bare tissue, you know, excruciatingly painful. But they got all six of them across. It was just a a miracle that that they did. Now,
0: if Don's story ended there, it would be remarkable. But Mm. it doesn't end there. After a year, he reenlists in the Navy He serves on a destroyer in the Pacific. He fights in some of the bloodiest battles of the Pacific, including the last one, Okinawa. Uh, Here's why he says he went back.
1: When I was discharged the first time I went home, nobody was around. All the people I graduated with that I ran around with, they were all in the service. That probably had a lot to do with me going back. Outside, maybe a little revenge.
0: He mentions revenge. Uh, this is not a book about forgiveness. How would you describe Don's feelings on revenge and and forgiveness following the war?
2: Well, he's still, and this is true of a lot of people who experienced the worst parts of the war. Uh, they saw so much, and there was such brutality. And the Japanese were so much more brutal than the Germans were, uh, both at the concentration camps, Bataan death march, uh, the rape of Nanking, and you hear all these atrocities that came out. And we're talking about just cold-blooded, not just murder, but torture and gleefully torturing these people. You have to understand these guys, these guys were so innocent in terms of the ways of the world. And they were so trusting, uh, you know, they were going on shore leave that weekend to buy a Christmas present for their kid brother or sister. Hmm. They sent their money home. they Wrote to the mothers. And to see them so savagely cut down in the prime of life and all the gifts that they had to offer the world uh, rescinded in that moment, Uh, he was never able to recover from that. You know, there's a part of him, he he lives, he still has his scars on the outside that you can see and some limitations physically, but you can't see the scars on the inside and the wounds on the inside. And the trauma, the memories, uh, have never gone away. And that's part of the price that he pays as a survivor to live with those memories. And it's just really hard to forgive in a situation like that. Was it difficult for you to work with Don to tell his story? You know, I tell you what the difficult part was of Nathan. The way the story came to me, uh, it was not a story I sought out and I had... An immediate sense of the sacredness of it. And I was just there trying the best I could to listen well and to ask the right questions. And then, about in the middle of it, I had some degenerative disc in my neck that transferred to my hands. And I would wake up and my hands would be all curled in together. And they were in a lot of pain and, and stiff. Um, and I would just cry and I'd say, um, <clears throat> You know, God, I, I will recover from this. I will. Be able to write again and write several books. But this is Don's only book. And just help me to listen well, to be a good steward of the story, and help me to get it done.
0: And the book was finished?
2: It was finished, yes. (laughs) Yes.
0: Ken, you helped write the first ever memoir of a USS Arizona survivor. Seventy-five years later, why do you think none of these men have told their story before?
2: Uh, I don't know why somebody would have would not have written. Uh, other than that's a pretty bleak assignment to go back to that those nightmarish images and feelings. But I'm so glad. I mean, his biggest fear at this point in his life, as we were we're talking, we're starting the book, he said, I'm just afraid the story's gonna be lost, that nobody's gonna remember Pearl Harbor or the lessons of Pearl Harbor. And and so I'm just so glad we were able to do that.
0: Ken Geyer is the co-author of Donald Stratton's biography, All the Gallant Men. I spoke with him in 2016. You also heard recordings of Stratton provided by the book's publisher. Stratton died last year in Colorado Springs at the age of 97. When he died, he was one of just three surviving members of the USS Arizona crew, which was bombed by the Japanese at Pearl Harbor on this day in 1941, 80 years ago. Stay with us. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.
7: If it's true that all you really need to know in life you learned in kindergarten, what happens when you miss kindergarten because of a pandemic? I'm Jenny Brindine, education reporter at CPR News. Many kids who are not in a formal classroom with other students for the past year and a half struggle with listening and processing. What letters do they know? What sounds do they know? Are they ready for building words? Kids and teachers getting back on track. Read and listen to the story at CPR.org.
0: When it comes to housing costs, Pueblo used to be considered an affordable alternative to bigger front-range cities. As Pueblo grows itself, that's changing. It's become yet another place where housing stock is tight. KRCC's Shauna Lewis brings us her conversation with the head of Pueblo's housing department, Brian Gallagher, about the challenges people are facing trying to find a place to live there.
3: The demand for housing has increased dramatically over the last year or so, but the supply of housing hasn't increased dramatically for the last 10 years. So that is directly driving costs higher and higher and making it tougher for families to compete for the supply of housing that's available. And unfortunately, it's felt harder in the lower income brackets.
8: Where's most of the increase in demand for housing coming from?
3: We realized that half of the projected growth is attributed to households and families coming from out of the county. And why are they coming to Pueblo? Generally, people are looking for a more affordable place to live or they're relocating to Pueblo for employment. They're choosing typically the north side of Pueblo or Pueblo West. A lot of it is for commute if they are working in Colorado Springs or Denver just easier to get there.
8: What gaps need filling in the Pueblo housing market?
3: At the very bottom of the income bracket, the city is missing about 3,800 units, meaning there's 3,800 individuals or families who can only afford so much in rent, but there aren't those units available. On the other side of the income spectrum, the city is short about 7,800 units of housing that is valued at about $1,875 a month or more. And those 7,800 units that aren't there are forcing that income stratus into the more modest housing, creating more of a demand for the middle. If we were to alleviate some of that pressure there, that would have direct impacts all the way through the housing income spectrum. So strangely, by building market-rate housing or even expensive housing, It alleviates pressure in the affordable housing strategy.
8: How much rent or mortgage are we talking about at the lower end of the range?
3: A monthly rent of less than $375 a month. On an affordable housing strategy, that's 30% of their income, so roughly about $1,000 monthly income. And any increase in rent, any additional pressure has a very high magnitude of impact when you're only talking about $1,000 for the entire month. $375
8: a month. How is that possible in 2021?
3: Mostly, we are talking about a subsidized property in this category. The only way we're going to expand this need is through development subsidies, low-income housing tax credit projects, additional public housing expansion of Section 8 housing vouchers. The private market cannot produce a new unit that would rent in that picture. So it will be a challenge to meet that demand. One key revision that we could make that would have some impact in this category is allowing ADUs, accessory dwelling units. And that would be a smaller type of housing, say in the back of your property or converting a a detached garage into a small housing unit. What
8: needs to be done to get developers to fill the need at the higher end of the market?
3: The simplest way to uh, encourage building on the upper end market is to streamline the process so that a developer can get their project moving with as little regulatory barrier as possible. The easier we can make it, the more they're going to want to do it.
8: Does the availability of housing affect economic growth?
3: Pueblo County's economic development potential cannot be realized without building housing. From an employer's point of view, if you don't have any housing, you're going to have troubles to recruit employees to your business. And if your housing's too expensive, you're going to have to give your employees a raise and you'll have to be able to absorb those costs or pass those costs on to the consumer. So the employment sector wants its employees to have decent, affordable housing. Partly because with affordable housing, it gives you disposable income, and with that income, you can contribute to the economy, and it all comes back around.
0: Brian Gallagher leads Housing and Citizen Services for Pueblo. He spoke with KRCC's Shauna Lewis. Hear this in all of the stories in our special series on housing instability in Colorado at CPR.org. Finally, today, music from a friend of the show, cousin Curtis of Montrose. The singer-songwriter just released a new album recorded live at the Sherbino Courtyard in Ridgeway, Colorado. As always, Curtis delivers a high-energy performance in his signature root stop style.
3: Came to this afternoon. I was hanging upside down. My race car flipped over. I'm smelling fumes all around. Next thing is a spark that did ignite, my hair's on fire, but I can say, never had a bad day in my life. No, no, never had a bad day in my life. I travel on the world on something fast on someone else's dime. Ooh, no, never had a bad day in my life. I burn the candle, lap both ends, but it feels.
0: The return of live music is a long time coming for artists like Cousin Curtis. The virtual shows of the pandemic weren't his cup of tea, but some fans at an in-person gig earlier this year helped change his perspective.
3: These folks came up to me and they said, we tuned in for every single Facebook live show. You are what got us through COVID quarantine. Well, I'm about to cry, um, but I have to play now. I was like, that is... That was so humbling and honoring. I just, I don't know, it was inexplicable. It makes me want to do it again. Like every once in a while, like once a month, do a Facebook Live show for everybody who's not able to see a show or who can't for whatever reason.
0: Still, the new record captures the electricity of a live performance in front of an actual in-person
3: crowd. My name is Cousin Curtis, y'all. We've had a really great night here. Thank you so much for coming and dancing and, and just being yourselves. This is absolutely fantastic.
0: And Curtis of Montrose. His new album, Live from the Shervino Courtyard, is out now. And thanks for joining us and to the Colorado Matters
3: team Carl Bielik, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer,
6: Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher,
3: Matt Hers, Michael Hughes,
6: Carla
8: Jimenez, Avery Lil,
3: Pedro Lumbrano,
8: Patrice Mondragon,
3: Shane Rumsey,
0: Ryan Warner. And I'm Nathan Heffel. With special thanks to Nell London, this is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.
3: There's a dragon with matches and he's loose on the town. I take a whole pill of water just to cool him down. There's a fire, a fire on the mountain, fire.